The second lesson is from the second chapter of Ephesians, starting with the first verse. You were dead through the trespasses and sin in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace to you all in peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. During the course of our worship through these long summer weeks, we've been considering the essentials of the Christian faith. Luther's small catechism has been our guide. and Pastor Watts had a whole bunch of copies of those early on, and they went like hotcakes. I hope you're still reading them. In topic after topic, as we've worked our way through the catechism, grace has been in evidence, God's gift to us, the gift of his love, the gift of his salvation, the gift of his son. We've learned of his grace at work as we heard about baptism and the Lord's Supper, the sacraments we celebrate in the Lutheran tradition. But we've heard about grace not just in those places. We heard about God's love for us, which we don't deserve and how it's come into our minds and into our attention through the other catechetical topics like the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer, the Creed. And yes, also we've heard of God's love for us as we spent time relearning about our time in prayer and about our time in confession and forgiveness. Yes, we've learned what God has done and what he continues to do for us in each and every one of these topics. And yes, we've also been inspired to respond to God's grace with faithful action of our own. Each of these topics calls us into service of the Lord. That was Luther's pattern 500 years ago when he wrote the small catechism. And it remains our pattern over these many weeks 
as we go through his writings that still work in our world today. So finally, after all these summer weeks, we come to the conclusion of this catechism series today. I I address this day the last session in the booklet that you all made off with. In fact, the very last one disappeared from here just a few minutes ago. But that last session in the, section in the booklets that uh, was made available for us has a eh, curious title to it. It's called The Table of Duties. Hmm. I thought it was a strange coincidence that on Labor Day weekend, a time when we come and, and celebrate taking rest from all our duties in the community, that we should be talking about our duties when we gather for worship. I also thought that the very words tables of duties, which seems to have been supplied by the editor in this particular printing and not by Luther, the author, could be replaced by something, eh, I thought, a little more memorable, a little more effective. So I tried it myself. I changed table of duties to simply godly living. So let's try that out. Let's try that title out in in light of the fact that God does not require us that we do as he expects us to do in the manner of someone doing their defined chores around the house. God is not a parent looking over our shoulder to see if I've fed the dog and taken the garbage out. God loves us. God loves us just as he has created us. It's God's very nature to offer his undying love to each and every person he has made. He invites us to be like him in that we are to love others as he loves us. And so he invites us to share in his mission, to bring others to faith in him and to go and spread love as he does. Bringing his love into the world and to individual people, I believe, is the definition of godly living. A reading from 1 Timothy calls us to pray for everyone. Did you notice? Everyone, including kings in high places. That might be controversial nowadays. But to pray for kings in high places so that we may enjoy a quiet and peaceable life and do so in godliness and with dignity. Our prayers, then, work toward God's intent that everyone be saved in the life to come and that they realize the presence of truth during their time on earth. They recognize the presence of Christ, who is the truth, in their time on earth. We in America do not have kings in our culture, but the same need for prayer applies to presidents, governors, and all who have responsibilities of leadership. I ask you, do our prayers bring wisdom to these leaders? Do our prayers perhaps even change their hearts for the benefits of the people widely? Sometimes they do, by God's grace. But consider the effects on our leaders themselves when they come to realize that other people, people, perhaps hundreds of thousands of them, people they've never met, are fervently praying that God's wisdom, strength, and courage be poured out upon them. Imagine the effect of that. In some cases, leaders even come to pray for the people they serve. They pray that the people will prosper in every way. Yes, spiritually, and economically, and emotionally. And 
in the material uh, things of this earth. As a very young person, I was privileged to see that happen. It does happen. This is what God intends. When we pray for one another, despite whatever our station in life might be, we come to love one another more actively. Distinctions of class fall away when we're in prayer together. We all become truly children of God. We become brothers and sisters in the one true faith. This mindset that I described springs from the last section of our small catechism handbook. Here we find that there are several subsections within that last section. And the first of these is addressed to people called bishops, pastors, and preachers. The existence of this subsection is curious because Luther produced this small catechism with a purpose. It was to be for use by parents to teach their children eh, around the dinner table, you can imagine, about the faith, something that wasn't common in his time. Martin Luther also wrote the large catechism, and the purpose of that was to educate pastors and and others who served in the church. So I asked myself, why didn't Brother Martin put this thought, this thought for preachers and pastors and the like, into the large catechism instead of into the smaller one? And the more I thought about it, the more a certain Bible passage jumped out at me. It came to me to consider the complex lesson that Jesus, after his resurrection, taught his disciple Peter. By the side of the lake, the two of them sat in discussion. And three times, three times, Jesus commanded Peter to tend my sheep. Three times. That's the definition of pastoral work, tending the sheep. However, within that same teaching, within that same passage in John's gospel, Peter learns that he too is one of the sheep. It's just that sometimes as a sheep, one of them has to wear a bell. And so it was for Peter and people like Pastor Jerry and Pastor Scott and I. So it's true for your pastors, as it was true for Peter. There are times when we stand in this place and interpret God's word. That's when we wear the bell. There are other times when your pastors take their place at a table as one of you lead a Bible study or perhaps lead others in prayer. There are times when any one of us, any one of us, not just pastors, might wear the bell that denotes the leader of the flock. And so the ethic that applies to the pastor also applies to those who lead a household. Luther says to all of us in such positions of leadership, you are to be above reproach. By that he doesn't mean you must necessarily be perfect. He knows we can't be and he knows he couldn't be. But we are certainly to be trustworthy and truthful and forthright in what we lead others to understand and to do. By holding ourselves to this standard, we may best encourage others by offering God's word in a way that conveys God's love for everyone. And we present the best possible voice to counter the world's noise which opposes God's word. In this last and final section of the catechism, in in the second subsection, it speaks about what the hearers owe their pastors. 
It's time for the new budget to be put together. So I was interested in that, right? I was also reminded of a time about five years ago when a place called St. Paul Lutheran Church in Kodiak, Alaska was looking for their new pastor. The good representatives of that congregation asked the Lutheran congregations in Mission for Christ leadership to announce their need for a new pastor at LCMC's annual gathering. Some call it the convention. The wisecracking leader who made that day's announcement told the hundreds of people who were gathered there that day that St. Paul was offering their new pastor a salary of a half million dollars, the use of a 4,000 square foot parsonage, and a fishing boat constantly at the ready with captain at the helm. The announcer's exaggeration should have been obvious to everybody. But nevertheless, I applied for that job. (laughs) And I got it. (laughs) I'm still waiting for the half mill, but that's... But brothers and sisters, that's not the sort of thing Luther is advocating in his teaching. Not at all. Rather, he is teaching that when someone takes a leadership role in the church, that person deserves the hearer's support, and to some degree, at least, their respect. Coupled with Luther's teaching that each of the members of the church are among, you know the phrase, the priesthood of all believers, we learn that we should apply the ethic of support and and respect to all who assume a leadership role, including Sunday school teachers and confirmation mentors, council members, those who lead us in the musical arts, and many, many others. In still other subsections in this end of the catechism folder, Luther writes to encourage husbands and wives, parents and children, workers and employers. His words here as elsewhere are steeped in the European culture of 500 years ago. However, the ethics of how we should treat one another flows easily through the centuries. We find advice derived from the Bible itself that should not be foreign to anyone's ears. We hear advice to be considerate, to again treat one another with respect, to know the other as heir with you of the gracious gift of life, to do what is right, to not give way to fear, to bring up your children in the instruction of the Lord, to be sincere of heart, to serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord himself shoulder to shoulder. We also hear that we are not to threaten others and not to show anyone favoritism. And alongside all these Christian behaviors, Luther teaches that we ought to let prayers flow from one another, for one another. To everyone, Luther concludes his work with the words that he borrows from a very famous man. Love your neighbor as yourself, he said. And then he says, finally, I urge that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. None of these things surprise you, I'm sure, because these are all things we knew before we entered this room today. We've known them a long time. We've known these things from our time in worship, in the years gone by, we've known these things in our time from reading the Bible in, our, in the quiet of our homes or in other places. We know these things from what folks have always known and just termed common sense. Nonetheless, we in the church constantly teach these things to one another to reinforce the wisdom God has previously imparted upon us. 
And we recite these things again and again to encourage one another to continue on our Christ-led journey that we call life. I remind you of also of today's passage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In the eighth verse, we heard these words, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are, we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Brothers and sisters, we have been saved by God's grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ who went to the cross for you and for me. Our salvation has created in us a capacity for good works. And that too was instigated by Christ himself. Even the works we are created to do have been prepared for us by God's design. As we live the lives God has ordained We are through all of these works and through all that we do to love one another. This is the path which guides us through the joy of living the godly life. Together, sisters and brothers, we are on the straight and narrow path that I call godly living. You don't have to look it up in a table. Our way is clear. The path is obvious. We begin with God's word. We accept the grace which comes only through the faithfulness of Christ, we then learn through practice and repetition to lovingly explain to others what Jesus' presence means in our lives. And then we invite others to join us along our walk in this life-saving path. All through this summer, each one of the sermon titles began with the same sentence. What is Christianity? Question mark. And we've learned, bit by bit, as we've walked through Luther's catechism, that Christianity is walking the path that Jesus has already gone and Jesus has established for us. Christianity is, in fact, living the godly life to the greatest extent we can possibly offer. And so my prayer for you this day, my prayer for all of God's people, is that we walk this path together and that may and that every soul that we encounter accept our invitation to join this journey with us, this journey of life, which leads lovingly to the Lord's throne. Thanks be to God. Amen.